Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. If you have a Bible nearby, I'd like you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. So we're in a series of studies now on the book of 1 Samuel, we're calling The Man Who Would Be King. And of course, the, the transition in the life of the people of Israel at this time is from this period of judges to a period of kings, like an, an actual united monarchy with one top dog that God appoints and a prophet who would speak the word to him. And all the while, underneath the happenings and the historical uh, accounts and this transition within the life of Israel, we have our eye on a, a coming king, a future king who would ultimately fulfill all of God's promises to his people. And even the great King David, who's sort of the crowning character, the crowning figure within First and Second Samuel, he himself is merely a picture, a, a, a shadow of the coming king in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read and look to uh, these accounts in the the book of 1 Samuel with the awareness that Christ will come and fulfill all of these happenings and promises and the needs of God's people. So God has raised up Samuel to serve as judge and priest and prophet for the people of Israel. He has done away now with the old wicked leadership of the household of Eli. We read some of their exploits in the early chapters of this book. And they have now all been judged by God and killed. And Samuel is now in place as the leader of the people of Israel. We're not yet to that that monarchy. We're not yet to a king. But Samuel will be this middle figure that that sort of... uh, it stands in that gap between the era of judges and the, the coming of uh, the monarchy in Israel. And so we've seen now Samuel is in position. He's recognized as a prophet of God. And then we spent a couple of chapters with Samuel off screen, right? Samuel wasn't even in the action of chapters uh, 5 and 6, really 4, four through 6, uh, because Israel went into battle with the Philistines and they brought the Ark of the Covenant, which is the like picture, the symbol of God's presence Uh, with the people of Israel. They brought that out into battle thinking for sure God is going to fight for us now because we've carried his furniture out into the battlefield and it didn't go well for them. God did not uh, honor that uh, presumption and they were slaughtered by the Philistines and the ark was captured. And so then chapters five and six followed the ark of the covenant on something of a mock victory tour. Right, Because you'd expect the Philistines maybe to parade the ark around their various cities and go, look, we've conquered the God of Israel. But in fact, what happens as the ark uh, takes camp in these various Philistine cities is that it says over and over, the hand of God was heavy against the Philistines. And they broke out in tumors and their fields were eaten up by mice and many died and they kept just passing the ark around. Get it out of here. We don't want it here. So they sent it to another city. And the members of that city had the same things going on. Well, get it out of here. So they play hot potato with the ark until finally they just go, we've had enough. And they yoke it to some cows and send it up the road and go, let's just see what happens. And lo and behold, the ark arrives back in Israel without the help of any 
Israelite uh, military power or some strategic plan to like go and find and recapture the ark, God just brings it back all on his own. And so the ark is now back in the possession of the people of Israel, and it found a new home uh, at the very beginning of chapter 7. Uh, at, at the land uh, called Kiriath-Jerim. They came and took the Ark of the Lord. They consecrated Eliezer to have charge of the Ark of the Lord. And so that's where we are now. So we're back in the land of Israel. The Ark has found its new home in Israel. And this is how the people respond to what's been going on in uh, the capturing of the Ark and then the seven-month period where it was gone and then returned. And so I'm going to read for you, uh, we're going to take this in three separate portions. We're going to go all the way through chapter 7 today in three sections. And we're going to see some very important truths about repentance. Very important truths about what it means to come near to a holy God. And what he requires of his people. And how we uh, ought to approach this holy God. And so we'll see first in verses 2 through 6 a genuine repentance on the part of the people of Israel. Let me read for you beginning in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So we have a good picture here of the people of God repenting. That's a big, like loaded religious word, repentance. Um, There's a lot behind it. And it can land on our ears with some dullness because we're so used to it. It also might have some trappings to it of, you know, street preachers that are, you know, pronouncing judgment and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is really just the message of Jesus and all the apostles, by the way. But you might have, you might have these notions in your mind about uh, repentance. And so it could call some negative things into your mind. But what we see here is the people of God truly turning toward the Lord and away from their sin. In fact, the word repentance really has the, the, the notion of a turning, a turning around uh, embedded in it. So let, let's just, just look at the things that are included in the summary of the way that the people of Israel repent. It says, I love this phrase in verse 2, they lamented after the Lord. Lament. That is sorrow. That is grief. That is bitter agony and sadness. They lamented after the Lord. They returned to the Lord. They 
put away idols. They directed their hearts toward God. They serve him only, right? Those are things that Samuel exhorted them to do. If you're returning with all your heart, put away the idols, direct your hearts to the Lord, serve him only. And then it tells us that they did those things. They put away the Baals and the Asherah. Those are just things associated with the worship of foreign gods that were really no gods at all, right? Um, They put those things away. So it began with lament. It began with sorrow over their sin. But I think even in the, the phrase lamenting after the Lord, there's more implied there than just feeling kind of bad about what you did. Because we can feel bad about our sins in all kinds of different ways. We can feel bad that somebody caught us and I'm a little embarrassed about it. We can feel bad because, well, I know it's not the right thing to do and I thought that I was better than that and so here I've proven that myself I'm still weak. And so it can be a, an ego thing where we feel bad that we didn't have this thing whipped like we thought we did. There are different ways to feel bad, but I think the lamenting after the Lord means that what we feel about our sin is that we have offended God and there is legitimate heartfelt grief over our displeasure to the Lord, that he has been offended, insulted, that we have mocked and belittled him by our sin. And so I think the first thing to note is that repentance involves a lamenting after the Lord. That is a a recognition that our sin is against God. Just like David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Now it's not exactly true that he only sinned against God because he sinned against a whole bunch of other people as well. If you were to walk through that story, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against that general that he, you know, sent the letter to all, right? He sinned against a lot of people. But what was weighing so heavily on his heart was that he had sinned against God. And there ought to be a burden in our hearts about how we have treated God and the the sorrow and displeasure we've brought to him by our sin. That's where it starts. But sometimes, even when we feel that way, even when we do couch our sin in terms of our relationship to God and how we belittled God and made ourselves more distant from him, sometimes we stop there. And we go, I've repented because I felt really bad about my sin. But that's not all that repentance requires. Because notice what Samuel says to them. If you are turning to the Lord with all your heart, what? He's going to tell them some things to do. Put away your foreign gods. Turn your heart back to the Lord. Serve him only. Right? There's action. Repentance requires action. There's things to do. There's, there, there, there's responses, tangible, practical responses to our sin that comprise repentance. And I would say that if we have it, if we stop at I feel bad about my sin and we don't take a step, we don't make a plan, we don't have actions to back up the bad feelings, so to speak, we haven't yet repented. It involves things like confession, things like Actions, maybe making strategies or plans about how we're going to avoid these pitfalls in the future, knowing your own weaknesses, knowing yourself and setting parameters and boundaries into place, destroying idols. Now, I think probably most of you don't have an actual like, you know, uh, carved image in your house that you bow down to and pray to and things like that. But 
I'm willing to bet that at least some of us have some idols in our lives. There's some things in our hearts and in our lives that have taken the place of God, that have become more important to us, that take our energy and our time and our, uh, our emotions and affections and our money more than the things of God and of his kingdom. So destroying idols, removing foreign gods from you, as Samuel says, that is entailed in repentance. Dale Ralph Davis says of the, the feeling bad about sin and how sometimes we think that's good enough. Somebody is sorrowful and tearful about their sin and we think, oh, that equals repentance. He says, repentance can sometimes masquerade like this. We take the tears or distress as infallible signs of repentance. Yet people can be moved without being changed. Genuine repentance is a tangible repentance. It does not stop with tears and weeping, but moves to concrete action. True repentance will meet Yahweh's demand for exclusive allegiance with whatever it takes to obey it. So if I'm really repenting of my sin, I am going to have actions to show for it. I'm going to be able to say, this is how I intend to follow and serve the Lord only. These are the boundaries and parameters and and mechanisms I put into my life to help me along this pathway. And there will be change. We don't want to just be moved. We want to be changed. That's what repentance is all about. Jesus, incidentally, agrees with that. In Matthew 18, as he's giving instructions about church discipline and when it's necessary to bring somebody into the court of the church, and say this person has sinned and is refusing to repent. That's what he's doing in Matthew 18. He, he says in leading up to that, that people ought to be willing to pluck out an eye or cut off a hand rather than commit sin against God. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Because it's better to be cast, it's better to be in the kingdom of heaven without an eye or without a hand than it is to be cast into hell with your whole body, right? That's the point that Jesus makes. Jonathan Lehman, in commenting on this, says, in summarizing, that is to say, he or she is willing to do whatever it takes to fight against sin. That's what God's Spirit does. Oh, excuse me. Repenting people, typically, are zealous about casting off their sin. That's what God's Spirit does inside of them. When this happens, one can expect to see a willingness to accept outside counsel, a willingness to inconvenience their schedules, a willingness to confess embarrassing things, a willingness to make financial sacrifices or lose friends or end relationships. Repentance, true repentance and sorrow over sin that actually turns toward the Lord involves uncomfortable cutting off In our life, not literally cutting off hands and plucking out eyes. Jesus is speaking hyperbolically there in in Matthew 18. But the attitude of a Christian toward his sin ought to be a determination at all costs to remove sin in his life, to fight against sin in his life, which will put him or her into some uncomfortable situations and some really awkward conversations. And to make some sacrifices. And we see the people of Israel doing that here. They are 
taking steps to remove the things that have turned their hearts away from God. There's a corporate dimension to repentance. That's all just about like in my own life, when I sin, here are ways that I ought to respond. But there is a church-wide, community-wide dimension to repentance. Look at what happens in verse 5 and 6. Samuel says, gather all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered at Mizpah. Right? So they all came together. They all had individual sins for sure. But they came together to recognize and publicly confess and confront the sins in their lives and in their families and in their community and in their nation. And so they come and they, it says they pour out water. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord. Nobody apparently really knows what that means I looked at several different commentaries to figure out what is this pouring out of water, and everybody kind of goes, we're not sure exactly what that is. So it's some demonstration of their, uh, of their sorrow before God, of their need for him. We don't know exactly what it, uh, how it signifies that, but they, pour, they draw water and pour it out, and they fast, which is a common uh, biblical practice for expressing sorrow over sin and turning toward the Lord. And they said there, They said together, we have sinned against the Lord. This is a corporate confession of guilt. This is why we do that in our worship services like we did just a few minutes ago. There's a a corporate element to coming together before God and admitting we're sinners and we need the grace of God every moment, every day. And Since the last time we gathered together, there have been plenty of times and ways where we have sinned against the Lord and fallen short of his holiness. And so we come together and we admit together that we're sinners and that we need his grace. There is an element of accountability in the church community with this. When we repent of sin, we need the help of brothers and sisters who know us, who see our weaknesses, and who care enough about us to help us in the fight against sin. Again, to quote Davis on this corporate need of confession, he said, it is the ongoing need of the church as she discovers the Christian life is a life of such ongoing, continual repentance. Friends, I don't know if you have the idea that being a Christian means that sin and weakness is done away and you need to get your act together, but that's not the Christian faith. The Christian life is one of increasing awareness of our sin and brokenness, looking to Jesus for forgiveness and healing and looking to the church for strength and accountability. In fact, if I had to sum up the shape of Christian living in a word, it would probably be this word, repentance. That's what Christians do. Christian living is a repenting way of life. So rather than be allergic to correction or exhortation, we ought to respond with humility and welcome to the words of encouragement and challenge from our brothers and sisters in Christ because we all share it. We all have weaknesses and need to be held to account for it. Does this describe you? Is your life marked by the fruit of repentance? Do you find yourself regularly confessing sin to God and to other Christians? Do you seek out accountability and help in fighting against your sin? I think that's what it means to be the people of God. 
It means we are aware of our sin and our need for God's grace. We turn to Christ for forgiveness and to his church for strength and accountability. And we see, I think, the people of Israel doing that in these verses. So the repentance of Israel in verses 2 through 6 prepares them to receive God's mercy. Don't get me wrong. It does not purchase God's mercy for them. It's not like God's going to be, be uh, helpful to them now because they've followed the right formula. But because they have repented truly of their sins and turned their hearts back toward him, removed idols from their lives and are serving him only, they have now prepared the way for God's blessing and kindness. And we'll see in the next few verses that they will need his help very badly. So turning to verses 7 through 11, we'll see a gracious rescue. We saw a genuine repentance, and now we see a gracious rescue, starting in verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. So the Philistines have now come against Israel once again, but this scene could scarcely be more different than what we saw in chapter 4. The Israel that we see here in chapter 7 is a changed Israel. It's a repenting Israel. In chapter 4, they had presumptuously marched against the Philistines, right? It doesn't even say that they uh, approached God or asked God or anything. They just, the Philistines are coming, off we go into battle, without seeking always help in any way. When things went badly, they treated God like a good luck charm by parading the ark around, attempting to coerce him into helping them, and they were utterly decimated, and the ark was captured. That's what happened in chapter 4, because Israel was not right with God in any way. Here, their strategy is altogether different. They recognize their helplessness and plead with God in prayer. I love, I love what they said to Samuel in verse 8. So it says the Philistines are going up against Israel. Israel heard of it, and they were afraid. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, I wonder what you might expect them to say to Samuel. Maybe something like, dude, call the generals together and get the army ready. The Philistines are coming, or something. But what they say to Samuel is, do not stop praying. This is our strategy. We need God's help. And that's it. We will not survive this attack without the intervention of God. So plead to God. That's their strategy. Which in terms of human military wisdom and strength, that sounds ridiculous. But that's exactly right. That's exactly what the people of Israel needed to do. Recognize their helplessness and turn to God in prayer. And that's what they do. And God comes through, doesn't he? God rescues them in a miraculous way. He intervenes on their behalf and sends the Philistines away in a panic. 
through no doing of their own. He just, it says he thundered against them. I don't know if they heard some loud clashing sound and assumed some giant army was coming toward them, or we don't know, but they were confused and were defeated. So God throws them into a panic, and then the, the Israelite army has an easy time chasing them down and striking many of them, we find. And so the Philistines are defeated before Israel this day. When God's people humbled themselves, confessed their sin, humbly turned to Yahweh in faith, and pleaded with him in prayer, he was ready to respond with grace. And really God is doing for Israel what he had promised to do for them for ages. In the law of Moses, he had promised that he would defeat their enemies when they were living in faithful covenant with him. Deuteronomy 28.7 says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. That's what we see happening here, isn't it? The Philistines come out on this united front, and then they're confused and panicked, and they flee in every direction. So here we see a gospel principle played out in the life of God's people. Because of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, repentance is always met with mercy. Repentance is always met with mercy. On the part of a sinner who does not yet know Christ, when a sinner recognizes his brokenness, turns to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, renounces his sin, God forgives, reconciles, and renews that sinner, granting him eternal life. The way the Bible says this is in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When a sinner turns to God in repentance and and faith, God receives him. God restores him. God gives him new and eternal life. When a Christian gets honest with himself, with God, and with others about his ongoing battle with sin and comes to Christ in confession and repentance, he can be sure that the resources of God's indwelling spirit and the local church will aid him in the fight. God is behind your fight against sin. When you come to him with repentance and confession, he will help you. He will receive you. Because of the gospel, repentance is always met with mercy. We see that played out for Israel in these verses. So Israel's genuine repentance had prepared them to receive God's gracious rescue from the Philistines. And in response to God's deliverance, Samuel will lead them in a grateful remembrance. And so the final verses, 12 through 17, a grateful remembrance. I'm going to read to you beginning of verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites, another enemy of the people of God. There's peace. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. 
So in response to God's gracious rescue, he sets up a stone that he calls Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And he says, up to this point, hitherto, God has helped us when he sets up this Ebenezer stone. Far cry from what we usually think of when we hear the name Ebenezer. We usually think of this grouchy, miserly dude from a Christmas carol. It's not what Ebenezer means at all. Ebenezer means stone of help. It's a recognition of God's grace, of God's strength and provision for his people. And Samuel's Ebenezer certainly commemorated Yahweh's most recent deliverance of his people. So clearly he's thanking God in this Ebenezer for having just rescued his people from the Philistines. But for any Israelites with a memory longer than a few months, or who grew up listening to stories of his work among them in past generations, it likely also called to mind God's great acts of faithfulness and power on their behalf for centuries past. Of Abraham and a promised child given in old age. Of deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Of miraculous rescue from the pursuing Egyptian army. Of the giving of his word at Mount Sinai. Of 40 years of daily provision in the wilderness. Of the gift of land and home through the conquest of Palestine. And on and on it goes. God's kindness and faithfulness to the people of Israel. And not just the obvious gracious gifts of God, thanks for the good stuff God has given us, but even the hard things, seasons of distress and wandering. W.G. Blake, he says, even amid the desolations of Shiloh, Shiloh, remember, is where Eli and his wicked sons served, where the tabernacle was. Even amid the desolations of Shiloh, the Lord was helping them. He was helping them to know themselves, helping them to know their sins, And helping them to know the bitter fruit and woeful punishment of sin. The links of the long chain denoted by Samuel's hitherto were not all of one kind. Some were in the form of mercies. Many were in the form of chastenings. One key aspect of faithfully following God is the raising of Ebenezer's. Probably don't call them that in your life very often. But it's an important habit to raise Ebenezer, stone of help, to God's grace. Looking to God's faithfulness, provision, and deliverance in the past gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, as the old hymn says. Jim Andrews wrote a a book uh, by the name Polishing God's Monuments. It's one of my favorite books. It's an excellent book, on, particularly on suffering. If you're in a season of suffering and hardship, you could do a lot worse than reading this book, which will point you to the faithfulness and kindness and, and, and wisdom of God in the hardest things that you face uh, as a human being. But in this book, he calls this the discipline of polishing God's monuments. In times of trouble and pain, the best source of strength and endurance is the careful study of God's faithfulness in the past to his people corporately and to you personally. So having your own running account of God's faithfulness to you, ways he's answered prayers, ways he's been merciful in your sin, ways he's helped you, strengthened you, comforted you, this discipline of polishing God's monuments, of raising Ebenezer's, 
It's a very important way of keeping our hearts near to the Lord. And really, I think it's the backside of, of true repentance. We've really repented of our sins and we've come to God in faith and turned from sin and taken these actions to demonstrate that we're fighting against our sin and turning to God only. It only makes sense that in response, we would give gratitude to God. We would look back on his faithfulness and his help in recognizing the sin, in granting us the sorrow over the sin to take it seriously, in giving us the strength to fight against it, in giving us the, uh, the, the, the network of brothers and sisters in Christ in the church to help us fight against it. All of these things are ways that God has been kind to you in your sin and in your repentance. And there is, of course, no greater deliverance in history than at the cross of Jesus Christ. When God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, as Romans 8.32 says, he delivered sinful souls deserving of wrath into his glorious kingdom and adopted them as his own children. There's no greater deliverance, there's no greater rescue than that. It's a rescue that we all need. Sinners need to come to Christ in repentance and faith. And when they do, he transfers them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. And Jesus gave to the church an Ebenezer to help us keep the cross in our view. We polish this monument of God on the first Sunday of each month when we take the Lord's Supper together. What is that if not an Ebenezer? This is a monthly declaration. Look at the deliverance of God. Look at the faithfulness and mercy of God in rescuing us from sin and making us his own and giving us to the family of God in the church. It's a beautiful picture. It's an Ebenezer. By the Lord's help, we have come to this place. And so as we see the people of Israel responding to their own sin and brokenness in, in true repentance. We see God deliver them in mercy and we see the way that they turn back and, and gratefully remember the kindness of God. We have an example for our own lives and for our own church community that we would take sin seriously, that we would come to God with confession, that we would come to our brothers and sisters in the church with humility, seeking accountability, and that all the while we would look back and remind each other of all the ways God has rescued and delivered and been faithful from day one all the way till he carries us home. Let's pray.